Well, it's been so good already this morning to just sing about Jesus. And as I, uh, as I was singing and worshiping God with you, I was uh, really paying attention to the words. And you could see in those hymns, sometimes we're, we're, we're praising Jesus for who he is as God. And sometimes we're praising Jesus for who he is as man. Uh, and, and that is a great mystery how God has accomplished that, that Jesus, being fully God and fully man, came to join us in our humanity, and yet never threw off his divinity, and he accomplished something that only God could accomplish, and, and he accomplished something that only a man could do. It's, it's just wonderful, the gospel that we have. And, and really, this if we want to put theological language to this, this is the doctrine of the incarnation, the enfleshment of the Son of God, the, the coming of, of the second person of the Trinity to become a man, to, to become a full participant in the human race. And that's what last week and this week are all about. Uh, it's about the incarnation, the, the humanness of the Son of God. Now, last week prompted much good discussion. Uh, within the congregation, and, and that's good. I hope that the sermons and the preaching will prompt discussion. But last week, we took a look at the humanity of Jesus. And one thing that, that I, I'm observing, I think more generally than South Shore, but just in general, and this is not true for everyone, but it's so much easier to affirm the divinity of Jesus than the humanity of Jesus. It's so much easier to think upon the divinity of Christ than to think about the fact that he was conceived, that he went through nine months in the womb of his mother, that he was born, that, that he couldn't talk when he was born, that he was completely helpless and dependent, and that, that he had to grow up the way that we all grow up. And uh, we can easily affirm that he is fully man without stopping to think about what that means. So last week, without a lot of theological language, uh, what, the approach that we took was to take a look at some of the best and the brightest among us, just men and women, and they are touched by the fall. They have inherited a sinful nature, and yet in spite of the fact that they are under the fall and the curse of God in that sense, Look at the great things that, that men and women have been able to achieve. Now, if Jesus is one of us, not just in theory, but in fact, then, then we should be able to look to the greatest among ourselves and say, Jesus is greater. Not just in his divinity, but to say, hey, he's greater than every one of us uh, from Adam until the last person that will ever be born and come into this world. Jesus, as a man, is greater. And, and one of the challenges about thinking about Jesus' humanity is, well, where do you begin? How, we have never seen a perfect man. And, and so how do you conceptualize Something that you have never seen but trust is real. That's what we tried to do last week. So we, we took a look at, at some people. We looked at Crosby. Oh, what a great hockey player. We looked at Mozart. What a great composer. We, uh, we looked at other uh, examples. We said, well, Jesus is greater still. Jesus is greater still. Jesus himself said, one greater than Solomon is here. I mean, Solomon was that 
man among men for his ancient audience. And so we took a look at some men among men in our current context. Uh, the third thing that I want to say just by introduction is that it's important that we remember that Jesus is still a man. He never threw off his humanity. We, we sung about his resurrection from the dead. All of his humanity was raised back to life, including the body that was nailed to the tree. And, and the same body that multiplied loaves and walked on the water and healed the sick and cleansed the lepers, the same one that, that was crucified and died and put in the tomb, that same body and everything else about his humanity, not just his body, but his human soul, his human mind, his human emotions, Everything that makes Jesus one of us was raised back to life. And, and Jesus ascended into heaven in all of his humanity, and he's going to come back as a man to rule over men. Now, nothing I've said denies the full divinity of Jesus Christ, but it's so much easier to focus on the divinity of Jesus and to allow his humanity to be evaporated. This week, we're going to take another look at his humanity. We're going to be focusing in on what does it mean for Jesus to be human. Last week, we looked specifically at four areas in which we could affirm, that because Luke does, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that Jesus grew in four areas like all human beings must grow. He grew physically. He grew intellectually. He grew spiritually. That might be the hardest of them all to understand. What does it mean that he increased in favor with God and man? That, that's hard to understand. And he grew socially. This week we're going to take a look at those four quadrants again. And we're going to look at the illustration that Luke himself gives us between uh, chapter, uh, verses 40 and 52. And we're going to see the way in which Luke gives us a snapshot of Jesus as he is growing and developing and maturing in his humanity even while he always has been and always will be fully God. In this episode, Jesus is 12 years old on the cusp of becoming a man. Would you open your Bibles to Luke 2, verse 40? As you're finding your spot, would you please stand? Luke chapter 2, verse 40. This is the word of God. And the child grew, and he became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were, they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. But when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? 
Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we affirm that you are our God and King. We also affirm that you are one of us in every way. You're the head of a new humanity and everything that makes us human, you share. Lord, I pray that by the grace and the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you will help us to think about your humanity this morning. And may it be instructive to us as we think about our own humanity. And unlike us, you never struggled with sin or weakness. Lord, we desire to grow up into Christ. Help us to do so. I pray that you would unite us as one people under Christ. Help us to love one another. I pray that as we learn more about you, that we would take that knowledge and we would employ it to the way in which we love you, we love one another, and we love those who are not yet saved. Glorify yourself. Speak through me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Please be seated. Now we learn here in verse 42 that Jesus was 12 years old. So what we're about to read about is, is when Jesus is 12. He, this is the only episode other than when he was an infant or after he was 30 that we have in the Bible about Jesus. This is the only episode that God thought it was important to share with us, which makes it really, really intriguing. What is it that God wants us to see here? What does he want us to know? In Jesus' context, at 13 years of age, boys become men. So we see Jesus just, we don't know how far along in his 13th year he is, but he's 12 years old. At, at most, he is 12 months away from becoming, in his cultural context, a man. What does it mean to be a man? It means that Jesus would have become accountable under the law. It means that he would have been eligible for full participation in the synagogue. Uh, he would have been a full participant in the civic life of his town in Nazareth, but also in, in Israel. So he would have been expected, like all of the men, to participate in three feasts every year. The, 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 uh, the rule of law would have applied to him in every way, and people would have expected him to live up to that. Thirdly, he would have been of marriageable age. Now, we at South Shore have a number of youth who are between the ages of 10 and 16. In our cultural context, we maintain that children of this age are still boys. 
or girls. Uh, we call them teenagers. And adolescence is growing. It used to be a short amount of time, but it's growing so that adolescence now stretches almost up to the age of 30 in some cases. So as, as we go further and further, our, 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 our understanding of this middle bracket, which was foreign to Jesus' context, seems to grow. But if you are between the ages of 10 and 16, I see some of you here, at the time of Jesus, you would have been stepping very soon into adulthood. So today's message is particularly for you. And it's also for parents of teenagers. How might we help our children to take that step, maybe not into full adulthood according to our cultural context, but in a biblical sense to begin to take more responsibility for ourselves, more ownership over our faith. In today's preaching text, Jesus is at the middle point of his life. Maybe not in years, but of development. And I think that's a reason that, that God inspired Luke to choose this. Right in the middle point. And that is when uh, Luke gives us a snapshot into who Jesus is. So let's take a look at those four quadrants. Physical growth, intellectual growth, spiritual growth, social growth. How is Jesus doing in these four areas at the midpoint of his life in regards to his maturity and development? Physical growth comes first. If you're reading through the Gospel of Luke, the last time we saw or heard of, of Jesus, he was just 40 days old in the temple. Now we fast forward more than 11 years. Last time we saw Jesus, uh, he couldn't walk. He couldn't skip. He couldn't run. Uh, in fact, he couldn't even hold up his head. He definitely couldn't sit up. He had to be held entirely. So we see here, just implicitly in the text, a physical progression. Now he's 12 years old. We see that in verse 42. As I mentioned last week, uh, Luke has taken us through a very macro way of looking at his development. In two, chapter 2, verse 16, Jesus is called a baby. In Luke 2.40, he's called a little boy. In Luke 2.43, which is where we are in our preaching text today, he's called a boy on way to becoming a man. So the first application point then, for, especially for our youth, it's a fairly easy one. Keep getting older. You know, I think we can all handle that. Just keep growing up. Allow the days to pass. Allow your body to grow. Let me just add a few thoughts to this, okay? So as, as we're encouraging our young ones to continue to grow, to, to continue to uh, become a little bit older, perhaps become a little bit more able physically, youth, it's really important for you to enjoy your physical youthfulness. I am... Just past my physical youthfulness. Just past. And I'll tell you, I took it for granted. I, I thought that I would always be able to uh, run fast and jump high and do all kinds of things and not be sore in the morning. That doesn't last. So God has created humanity in such a way that we're strong physically in our early years. And then we only seem to understand the usefulness of that when we're older. So, so take it from an older guy from the pulpit. Enjoy these years when you're young. 
when you can do so many things physically. Don't wish it away. It's so easy when you're in those teenage years to say, I just wish I was older. I just wish I was as old as my mom or my dad or my grandma or my grandpa because all of these freedoms that we, when we look at the people who are older, say, oh, you don't have to ask permission to do that. You have so much freedom to do what you want. But don't wish away your youth and don't neglect it. Take advantage of it. Use it. And if you can gain that perspective, then you'll be wise even while you are young. Parents, help your kids to gain this perspective. They can't have this perspective on their own. They don't know what it's like to be on the other side of youthfulness. So parents, you have to continually remind your children, enjoy these years, enjoy your childhood, enjoy this expanded adolescence that our culture has given you. Uh, make use of it. And, and parents, when we're talking about physical development, help your kids to see that life is more than a screen. It's more than a TV. It's more than an iPod. It's more than uh, the internet or cyberspace. Uh, uh, use your bodies. Enjoy your bodies while you are young. So that's physical growth. It's a fairly easy and self-evident one. Secondly, let's take a look at intellectual growth. As I said, last we'd seen Jesus, he was 40 days old. I doubt he could draw. He couldn't read. He couldn't write, even though he's fully God. The one who spoke the universe into existence couldn't even talk. The one who placed the stars in the sky with his fingers, so to speak, couldn't draw a picture of them. He couldn't add or subtract or multiply or divide. But now he's 12. And look what he can do at 12. He is interacting with the intellectual elite in Israel. According to the Messianic Jewish scholar of the 19th century, Alfred Eldersheim, the Passover attracted the best and the brightest in Israel. It was one of those times when the scholars of the day would gather together at the temple and they would participate together in theological discourse. And they would start by talking about the Passover, which was sort of the way to get started. Uh, and then they would just diverge into whatever it was that they would talk about. But so you have the best and the brightest of the scholars gathered together in Jerusalem at the temple. They're talking about theology and the Bible in the, in the highest uh, category of thought for that day. And this is precisely where we find the boy Jesus gathered with all the intellectuals and the scholars. Take a look again at verses 43 through 47. Through 47. When the feast was ended, and this is probably talking about the feast of Passover, which was the first two days of the Passover week. And then you had the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which would last for a whole week. And so it was, it was normal for people to come for the Passover and then not stay for the whole week. We don't know exactly what's happening here, but it looks as though Joseph and Mary and the people from Nazareth were going home before the end of the week. So when the feast was ended, and as they were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, and then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. Now parents, imagine if that happened to you. I mean, is there any greater horror than to be a day's journey away from the biggest city in the country and to recognize that you don't have your son with you? 
And if you're Mary and Joseph, you're thinking it's our, our number one job as parents right now is to protect the Messiah. They didn't really know what that meant in its fullness, and we'll see that. But they knew that God had charged them to take care of him. And they've lost him. So they're panicking. You, know, you can't even imagine the kind of anxiety and panic that that would have caused them. What it would have caused me if I lost my daughter and was a day away from the last time I had seen her. So they, they scramble back to Jerusalem and look for him. Verse 46, and after three days they found him in the temple. Can you imagine missing your child for three whole days? And then they find him where? They find him engaged in theological discourse at the temple. This would have been the University of Israel. He was sitting among the teachers. He was listening to them. He was asking them questions. It's interesting, this is the only time that Jesus is described as a student. After that, he's rabbi, he's the teacher. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So even though he's a student, he's exceeding all of the expectations for a 12-year-old boy. But more than that, he was more than keeping up with the scholars of his day. Now, what do you think they might have been talking about? According to um, Alfred Eldersheim, they... They probably were at the very least talking a little bit about the Passover. And we know this because it is the Passover. We were told that everyone was gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so you get all of your scholars at the temple. And one of the things that they talk about is the Passover. Now, if you're Jesus and you're hearing all of the scholars of your, of your nation discussing the Passover and you know who you are, what does that spur in your mind? What must Jesus have been thinking about? Do you think Jesus was thinking that in 21 short years from now, I will be crucified at this very peace, uh, feast of the Passover? Do you think that Jesus knew that he was the one that was going to bring fulfillment to the Passover? Do you think that he gave any insight to these scholars about what the Passover was really all about? I mean, just in short form, this is what the Passover is all about. Israel was in slavery. They were in bondage to Egypt. So God sent a deliverer, Moses, and Moses said, let my people go out of slavery, but Pharaoh resisted. So God sent plagues. The 10th plague was the death of the firstborn. After the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh let God's people go. But during that plague where the firstborn person in every house in Egypt was killed, God instructed Israel through Moses, take a lamb, take the blood of that lamb and put it over the doorpost and the lintel of your house. And when the angel of death comes into Egypt to kill the firstborn in every house, the angel of death will pass over your house and you will not die. Now, if you're Jesus, you're saying, look, humanity is enslaved to sin. We're in bondage to sin, and the only way to come through that bondage, to be delivered from that bondage, is for a lamb to be slain, because at the final judgment, do you know what will happen? There will be the plague to end all plagues. It won't be the firstborn in every house, but every man and woman who has ever lived will be judged. And those who are in bondage to sin without the blood of a lamb will be condemned. But anyone who applies the blood 
of the Passover lamb, Jesus, to their lives by faith, that judgment will pass over them. They'll come through that plague into eternal life. Those who were once slaves have been set free by the blood of the Passover lamb. Do you think Jesus shared that kind of thing with the intellectual elite of his day? In three days, might they have also touched on other aspects of the law of Moses? Might they have talked about the prophets? Might they have talked about the Psalms? We don't know what they talked about. But Jesus was there for three days. Blair already read for us from Jesus' last words. It's very intriguing to me the way Luke has structured his gospel. At the very beginning, when we see Jesus' first words, we know that he is in the temple speaking with the intellectual elite of his day. We don't know exactly what he's talking about, but look at what he says at the very end. Luke 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, this is verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. We don't know specifically what they were speaking about at the temple when Jesus was 12 years old. But we know 100% that it had to do with the Hebrew Bible, probably Passover, probably they got into the law of Moses, at least in part. They probably touched on some of the prophets. They probably referenced one or two Psalms. And as 12-year-old Jesus is sitting there, and he's thinking about all that he's seen at the Passover, and he's listening to what the best and the brightest have to say about the Bible, he says to himself, at least in part, this is about me. So as he's learning from the teachers of Israel, he's learning about himself. And as he's giving answers that cause them to wonder and to marvel at how could a boy know such things, he's teaching them about himself we see Jesus therefore in the midst of self-discovery and self-revelation we don't know how much he understood at this point about himself we don't know how much he revealed about himself at this point, but we do know this. He is discovering things about himself, and that's why he wants to be there. He wants to hear about himself in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms, and he wants to share at least in part what he knows about himself. And those who heard the things that he said said, I never heard anything like it. And then at the end of his ministry, just before he's about to ascend into heaven, he's doing the exact same thing with his disciples, say, listen, come here. Uh, he gathers his disciples to himself, which is the fulfillment of the temple. He says, come to the temple, come to me. Let's talk about the law of Moses. 
Let's talk about the prophets. Let's talk about the Psalms. But not like they used to talk about them. Let's talk about them now in light of me. So we, in the church, gather together. And we are the temple. We talk about the law of Moses. We talk about the prophets. We talk about the Psalms with one goal in mind all of the time. That is to know Jesus better. To know Jesus better. That is the goal. Always and forever. So youth, as you approach or just past the age of 13, it is crucial that you ask serious questions about who Jesus is. Who is Jesus to you? Not, not who is Jesus to your mom and dad. Not, not who is Jesus to your pastor or your elders. Not, not who is Jesus to the other people in the church, but who is Jesus to you? Just as Jesus had to go through a process of self-discovery and self-revelation, you need to discover who he is as he reveals himself to you for yourself. And this is the most important time in your life where you have to make your faith your own. Uh, up until this point, you borrow a little bit from the faith of your parents, and rightly so. But, but right now, you need, to, you need to wrestle with your understanding of who God is and who Jesus is and, and who this, what the scriptures are and how they bear witness to who Jesus is in your life. And you need to use all of your mind to do this. This is not a lazy exercise, but you need to engage your mind. As much as you do at school for math or geography or social science, or history. You need to use the faculty of your mind as much as God has given you ability to do so to explore who Jesus is. You need to explore biblical and theological ideas and you need to ask hard questions. You need to ask questions that maybe your mom and your dad don't even know the answer to. Maybe the elders and myself, we, don't, we wouldn't be able to answer you right away, but, but I would love a question that stumps me. It drives me into the Bible to, to help you, to shepherd you, to guide you, to help to teach you. To, so that you can help me to see Jesus more and I can help you to come to know who Jesus is. Ask questions. Seek answers. Jesus, Jesus does not say just have a, a blind faith. Just believe because your parents tell you to believe. He says ask. Seek. And then knock. Ask, seek, and then knock. Which means, parents, we must help our children through this critical time of their life. We need to allow our kids to doubt the things we have taught them. We have to give permission to our children to doubt the things that we have taught them. Because it's through doubt that we seek clarity. It's only when we, we don't, we're not quite sure what we think about that, mom. I know you've told me this all the time, but I'm not sure that I am there, dad. We'd say that's okay. In fact, that's good because what you're doing is you're transitioning from childhood to adulthood, from, from just being under the umbrella of, of the, our family's faith to making this faith your own. Of course, we need to be there to help. 
our children through the doubt, to give them reassurances, to say, it's okay that you're doubting, but you need to know that, that mom and dad believe this with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, and with all of our strength. So you can doubt, but you need to know that your mom and dad don't doubt this anymore. And if you've had doubts in your life, you could share that with your kids and say, look, I doubted this at one time too, and I don't doubt it anymore, but I want you to find the answer for yourself. We can help them to ask the hard questions. Now, I am, this is directly to the parents who might be fearful of this kind of thing. I am so convinced of the gospel. I am so convinced that Jesus is who the Bible says he is that I am not concerned about anyone questioning or challenging that. The worst thing is that our kids grow up and just leave. They're, they don't want to even ask the questions. Because I know that if anyone sincerely asks the question, if anyone sincerely seeks the truth, they will find Jesus Christ. And they will know that the gospel is real and that God saves. So we don't have to be afraid, parents. We don't have to fear. We've got the truth. What we need to do is encourage our children to seek the truth, not to believe what we believe, but to seek the truth. And if they sincerely seek the truth, they will find the truth, and they will, of their own accord, by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, believe what we believe. Sometimes it's the fear and the lack of faith of parents that quenches our children and gives them no permission to seek Jesus for themselves. Parents, we need to show our children that the Bible and our faith is intellectually robust. It stands up to the hardest scrutiny. It answers the most difficult questions. We have to show them that, that our gospel is intellectually stimulating, intriguing, interesting, fascinating, fun even. Uh, for too long, uh, we, we have taken the fun out of theology, we've, we've taken the exploration out of doctrine, and, and we've indoctrinated, and we've been dogmatic, but we haven't said, there's some amazing things to be discovered here. Go and, go and seek it out. Find it for yourself, and when you do, you will take all that you own, and you'll sell it so you can buy the field because there's a treasure of countless worth in that field. Now parents, do you believe that? If you believe that, let your children go. Unleash them to discover what you have found. We need to help our children to discover, just as Jesus discovered at some point in his development, that he and the gospel is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures and promises. Which means that we are not rightly teaching the Old Testament if we don't link it to Jesus eventually, somehow. We do not want to take the Old Covenant and drop it on our kids and say, enjoy it. The Old Covenant was heavy. The Old Covenant revealed sin. So we rightly use the old covenant to take them to Jesus Christ. 
The old covenant was filled with what you ought to do and ought not to do. Uh, The new covenant says you will never, ever measure up to God's perfection. Throw yourself on the grace of Jesus Christ. And then live for him. Why are our kids leaving the church? Because we say you need to live up to something that no one has ever, ever, ever lived up to. I mean, that's one reason, and it's not across the board. So we need to help our children to discover that Jesus and the gospel is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. There's much, much, much that we can give ourselves to intellectually as we grow up in Christ. This brings us to our third quadrant, spiritual growth. Last we had seen Jesus, he was 40 days old. Even then, he was fully God. Even then, he was the word of God. Even then, he was sustaining the universe through the power of his word. Now, try and get your head around that. So in that sense... Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. There is no growth. There is no development. He always has been and he always will be. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He is, in that sense, unchanging. But we're not talking about his divinity primarily here this morning. We are talking about his humanity. And we don't know exactly when in his spiritual development he understood that he was God. We don't know exactly when or how he came to that realization. Did he know when he was days old? He might have. There's no way to know. There's no way to know when or how Jesus understood who he was. But we do know this. By the age of 12, he was fully aware of who he was. So at at the very least, by the age of 12, he knew exactly who he was. Look at verses 48 to 50. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Do you see the emphasis there in what Mary has said? Oh, son of mine, your father and I Now, is that all true about Jesus? Was he the son of Mary and Joseph? Yes, he was. But that's an incomplete understanding of who Jesus is. And that's what Jesus will move to correct right here. Your father and I, says Mary, have been searching for you with great distress. And he said to them, these are Jesus' first words, recorded first words. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? See, what Jesus is doing there is he's responding to what Mary, his mother, has said to him. He's saying, look, it is true that I am your son, but you have missed something really important about who I am. I am not merely your son. I am the son of God the Father. So As a child, I'm exactly where I ought to be. In my father's house. Right? Because the accusation is, why weren't you 
with us, your mother and father, because that's where children are supposed to be, right? You are supposed to be with your parents. If you ever have a, uh, your kid out in a public place, don't go where I can't see you. You are supposed to be right here with me. It's true. So when Jesus says, I'm in the right place, what he's saying is, look, mom, dad, I, I am your son, but I am also, and in some ways, in a, in a much greater sense, the son of God. So whether I'm in God's house or your house, I'm in the right place. It's a profound thing to say. Jesus knows precisely who he is. The application for this, then, is very similar to the intellectual quadrant. Youth, the most important spiritual question that you will ever ask or answer is this, who is Jesus? Jesus had to ask himself that question, and he compelled his mother and father when he was 12 years old to ask and answer that question. Who is Jesus? Parents, we need to give our children space to sincerely ask this question. We can give guidance and we can affirm who we know Jesus to be, but they need to ask the question. They need to answer the question for themselves. And, and this is the point, which I've pretty much already made, but I'll just underline it here, is this, that we must be careful not to short-circuit this question. It, that is the impulse of parents who love Jesus. When our children are asking this question, we give them the answer. We, we fill it in so fast for them. And, and then we, we, we fill up their words with our words. We can't do that. Because then they're no further ahead, though we feel better. They're no further ahead. They haven't actually discovered who Jesus is. So, so we have to be like Jesus and say, why were you looking for me? Did you not know I'd be in my father's house? We don't use those words. That wouldn't make a lot of sense. But we have to ask questions that compel our children to think about this. And when our children affirm who Jesus is, rather than just saying good and sort of check that off the box, we've got him spiritually in a safe place, we need to push, we need to test. What do you mean when you say that Jesus is your Savior? What do you mean when you say that Jesus is fully God? What do you mean when you say that Jesus died for your sins? And then, depending on how they answer, then we need to push to a second level. Well, what, what, does that, what are the implications of that, you see? We're pushing our kids to challenge who they know or think Jesus to be. It's the only way that at the end of our responsibility, we can be assured that we did everything that we could. Birds have to push their little ones out of the nest. So do we, theologically. All in the right time. And that's wisdom between parents. Let's go to social growth. Last we had seen Jesus, he was 40 days old. Now, the extent of his social life at this point was Joseph and Mary, predominantly Mary, obviously, uh, Simeon and Anna for really, really brief encounters. Not the most 
robust social life at this time. Now he's 12, and he finds himself in, in Jerusalem when it had swelled from, uh, estimates vary from about, maybe there was 30,000 people living in Jerusalem. At this time, it swelled up to about 250,000 people. So now he's in the middle of the most social feast of the year, and, and he decides to stay put when his family and all of those uh, people from Nazareth go back to Nazareth, he stays. And he goes, and socially, he says, I want to rub shoulders with the intellectual elite. So you see some social progress taking place here as Jesus is stepping out into the world socially. Notice how his peers, peers, quote-unquote peers, uh, how the people, the men, the teachers in the temple received him socially. Verse 47 and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. They, they esteemed him at the age of 12. This was, this was amazing. He wasn't yet past what we would call bar mitzvah. It didn't exist yet, but he wasn't yet a man. And yet all of these men esteemed him and said, wow. Now just think, if you're, isn't that what we all want to feel? We want to walk into a crowd of people and for people to be pleased with us. Maybe not wowed by us, but at the very least, pleased with us. And Jesus enjoyed that. And we see that in verse 52, right? As he's growing up, he increases in favor with God and with man. Now, we find out later that Jesus says, when they hate you, don't worry. They hated me first. So developing socially is not seeking the approval of our peers, but it's being comfortable in who we are. And then our peers will sometimes esteem us and sometimes they will hate us. But so long as it depends on us, we need to be gracious, merciful, kind, patient. There's another point here, I think especially for the youth that's important. Verse 50. His parents did not understand what Jesus said to them when he spoke to them. Verse 51, so he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he was submissive to them. Now, if you're a teenager and you are just, you are on this high, you're interacting with the best and the brightest in whatever your field is, and everyone thinks that you're pretty good and your parents come to scoop you up and take you away, what's the natural teenage response? I'm not going with you. Look at all of these people think I'm something pretty special. So you go home. I'll stay right here. Thank you very much. You've done your job. Now I am going to live for myself in the world in which I live. And all of these people, these friends, these peers, these experts, they, they think I'm good. They love me. They want to spend time with me. That, that is the way that fallen men and women react when they're teenagers. I, I did it. You probably did it. Maybe you didn't, but I did. It's just so natural to us. Now, so youth, you're going to come to that. If you haven't already, you're going to come to that moment where mom and dad just, it feels like they're suffocating. You don't want to stay under their roof. You don't want to submit to their rules. You don't want to be their child anymore. You want to step out on your own. You want to develop your own social identity. I get that. Jesus would have probably been able to understand that as well and does, and you got to pray to him about it. But look at what Jesus did. He submitted to his parents. And so youth, 
as you make this transition uh, into, you know, 13 and beyond, it's, it is important that you put yourself in social situations where you get to discover who you are socially. You have to get out there and be yourself in the world among peers. And whatever it is, the way that God has gifted you or the interests or the talents that God has given you, you want to start using them. You want to go out there and find a group of people that are also doing those things and, and take risks, try new things. Come to know who you are socially. At the same time, like Jesus, so long as you live in your parents' house, submit to them with glad obedience. So you want to do a both end, just as Jesus did. He, he went out into the, the group that he wanted to be a part of socially, but then he also submitted to his parents. Now, parents, we all remember when we were teenagers we need to create social space for our children as they enter into this time of their life. It, it does no good to pretend that they don't want to become their own people. It does no good to say, well, I don't want you outside of the home. That's an extreme case. We need to, we need to intentionally create social space for our kids. And it can be frightening when we do this to realize that our kids aren't little anymore. Now, our identities need a shift and adapt and grow. But it's important that we do not smother our children, even with the best intentions. So be wise, create safe boundaries, but make sure that your kids have the opportunity to discover who they are socially at this time in their life. Much to learn from the humanity of Jesus, isn't there? The ways that he has grown up right before the eyes of many. In summary then, Jesus grew physically. He grew intellectually. He grew spiritually. He grew socially. By the age of 12, he was ready to make the transition from boyhood to manhood. Likewise, youth, parents, we must make every effort so that by the age of 13, we're beginning to make changes. We're allowing and we're working together so that our children are transitioning into responsibility as teenagers in our cultural context. These can be difficult years for everyone. Youth, the most important thing for you to do with these years is to come to a right understanding of who Jesus is for yourself. Above everything else, that ought to be your priority. No matter how hard you have to wrestle with God. Parents, the most important thing that we can do for our kids at this time in their life is to give them that space, to give them that freedom, and to guide them, but not to force them. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a man. You were a teenager. And you wrestled with all of the temptations that our youth will wrestle with. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a, as a church and as parents. Help us to work together to help our kids make a safe transition from childhood to adulthood and that they wouldn't lose you in the process. In fact, I pray that 
our youth would find you for themselves and be saved. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.